What is up, everyone? I hope you're having a wonderful 2023. Inside the War Room is, of course, here, ready to go. A lot of shows this year to put out. Two things you can do to support us. One, give a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. A like, a thumbs up, subscribe, whatever that looks like on your platform. We would greatly appreciate it. Two, if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to warroommedia.com. That keeps the ads off. That keeps us rolling. It covers our cost. We would really, really appreciate that. Warroommedia.com. Stella, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, so the 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 title of the book is provocative: the weaponization of loneliness. I think in today's society, it is common to hear people say they they want to be alone, they want to be off the grid, they want to check out. But for being honest, everyone at some point wants to be around people, and we miss that loneliness is a is a very powerful motivator and a fear tactic that can be used um especially when you talk about like prisoner prisoners or prisoners of war uh who are put in to isolation for long periods of time so what was the genesis of your book and is this a topic you've studied before uh this particular project yeah uh well it is the most potent weapon around even if we think that we want solitude and quite often we do need solitude but uh the kind of isolation i'm talking about is um you know, uh, like social rejection, ostracism, and really being alone. I mean, in the sense of solitary confinement, um, that's the that's considered the most, you know, the most terrible uh, punishment uh, by a lot of prisoners. So it's not the physical punishment, but it's the sense of being isolated, unmoored, unconnected to other people. And because we are social animals as human beings, um, we have a strong need for connection, even if we don't like being around a lot of people. Uh, we still have a strong need for connection in our personal lives, family connections, connections with faith community or community in general, friendships. And even if those are few, if they're strong and healthy, um, they're necessary for survival. And so the flip side of that need is the fear of being isolated and, and shunned. And so that has been used, that, that fear has been exploited um, throughout history uh, to great effect by tyrants uh, in order to get uh, trigger the conformity impulse when people start self-censoring and creating a spiral of silence around an agenda, especially a very destructive agenda. That's how destructive agendas have always gone forward, um, you know, throughout history. And we need to pay a whole lot more attention to those dynamics. I think we all know it, you know, instinctively, we understand, you know, how powerful it is, but we don't understand the dynamics and the process well enough to try to, you know, resist it. Yeah, it's interesting because um, we're in a point in history where I think we all, on some level, realize, you know, putting someone in solitary confinement is an extreme punishment. The stories, there's enough stories uh, to realize that. Um, However, the effects on, you know, banning someone from the public conversation is, is, is new in the way that it's being formulated, right? So maybe... 
you know, in 1655 or whatever, you could go to the town square and that would be, there, there's a consequence there, which real uh, that you'd suffer. But being ostracized today um, is usually by people you don't know. And then you get dogpiled on by people that you don't know. And then there's a mob of people you don't know who are saying that you can't be a part of this group anymore, uh, which is probably for the first time in human society that we're seeing people having to deal with that type of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we all should know by now that social isolation is devastating. I mean, not just in terms of the mental health effects, but also physical health. I mean, uh, when people are socially isolated, especially in a severe sense, uh, they're more susceptible to heart disease and stroke and dementia, early onset dementia. So there's that. But also you were mentioning, um, you know, maybe it's just, you know, people you don't know. Well, if you think back to, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with um, Mao Zedong's um, cultural revolution in China during 1966 to 76, and how there was a certain technique used to isolate people and to completely humiliate them publicly. It was called the struggle session. And anybody who was considered an, quote, enemy of the people or a counter-revolutionary, they had a whole, um, they had a long list of, of names uh, that they would call people uh, th- that, uh, you know, they would be paraded. Uh, it was a very violent kind of, uh, you know, it, it was a violent sort of uh, dynamic that, that went on where people were, uh, you know, they put dunce caps on them and they paraded them around and, uh, and, and they would actually expect, you weren't safe if you were a bystander, you were expected to participate in the struggle session. And uh, even if you were family members or, um, you know, neighbors that you, you had been friendly with. Uh, So the idea was really to isolate and to use that kind of isolation to control for social control. I mean, this this is a standard, uh, it was basic tenet of um, totalitarianism. If you read Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, where she flat out states that people become powerless really when they're in a state of isolation. And so therefore... Uh, the main, um, the primary concern of all tyrannical government is to bring that isolation about. The irony is that they bring it about by provoking the fear of isolation. And as we conform and comply based on that fear, um, we end up even more isolated. Even if we might think we're getting a little bit of relief, all of society ends up uh, you know, going down that route towards atomization where everybody is kind of separated from one another and therefore, you know, more powerless. It's interesting that you bring up um, that concept because you see that in modern day North Korea, very something, something very similar, which is we're going to have a session. Everyone's going to sit around and you better tell what the person to your right or left or whatever it is did this week against the state. And if you don't, you're going to be punished. And so it's, it's a very powerful tool 
that you might get someone else punished, but if you don't punish someone else, you're going to be punished yourself. And it's, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I mean, and you could see this conformity uh, in North Korea. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, video of Kim Jong-il's funeral back in, um, I guess it was 2012, 2013. I've forgotten when he died. Uh, Maybe it was, later than that. But if you look at the the footage from the funeral, everybody is, it's like mass hysteria. It's beyond, it's not natural, but it's mm-hmm. everybody uh, going into paroxysms of uh, grief. Uh, and, and, you know, some of it may be real, but for the most part, it was, it's a sort of mass delusion that can grip a society when nobody's really allowed to have other, you know, to listen to other points of view, to hear other points of view, uh, or, you know, just to verify what's real and what's not. And you end up with that kind of, you can see what the isolation has done to that population. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's the whole point is to control people by separating them and, you know, being alone together, you know, that that's really what you see in Mm -hmm. cases like that. So it's a, it's a very powerful tool and we just need to be more aware of how it's used. And I'm reminded because as you talk about that, Michael Malice um, was the first one, I think, to bring this to my attention after he wrote a book on North Korea. And he was saying that, you know, he would get quite frustrated with people who would go to North Korea and report on North Korea. And then they would report as if they could take what the local citizens were saying is accurate. And he goes, listen, if you, if you, you know, it's hard to know what they think, but if you act like you know what they're thinking, uh, if they say the wrong thing, they might be executed or exiled or whatever. So you have to, you have to presume that there, that there's a high state of fear that they might be, that, mm-hmm. that they could be lying to you, but you take that and you bring it to the U S and, and we see this play, it seems, differently on both sides, right or left, in the U.S., which is if you don't tow the company line, the political line, your side might ostracize you. And the other side probably won't welcome you. And so there's this kind of fear of a, a different sort of loneliness that you can see in the U.S., but it plays out similar. I mean, the, the, the stakes are a lot less, I suppose, but the, yeah. the, um, the potential to be left alone is there or left outside, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, you can see reflections uh, in in our culture, especially as communications technologies have become more advanced, uh, especially with social media. Uh, how, uh, you know, people uh, have developed the fear of cancel culture is, you know, the way it's often put, uh, you know, being canceled. It's like being, you know, exiled or ostracized or, you know, cast out. And um, it's a powerful fear and social media has, uh, you know, built that up. People uh, are very susceptible. A lot of people are very susceptible to it. You see it especially, uh, you know, in false confessions. If somebody says the wrong thing and then they're uh, bullied quite often mm. into saying, oh, I'm so sorry, it was wrong. Even if it was just, you know, an opinion that five minutes ago, everybody, you know, the majority held. It, it's, a, it's a strange <laughs> new uh, dynamic. What's that? Yeah. So on, on the false confessions, there is something today, uh, this will be out 
you know, not not today, obviously, but on the day we're recording this, there's a piece in the Atlantic and it's calling for amnesty over COVID. And the author argues that, um, and I don't know the author, uh, don't follow her work. So I'm not familiar with all of her positions, but essentially it was impossible for anyone to know. Um, I guess it's impossible for her to know. I, I would, I would say, um, what the right take on COVID was at any point in time. Um, and now it's time for people to let bygones be bygones and move on. And it's been interesting to see the reaction because there are plenty of people who did not agree with her take during COVID who were like, you know, I remember the things that you called us mm. during COVID. You were going to, you said that we wanted to kill grandma. You said that we were, you know, should be locked up in camps. In fact, I'm old enough to remember on Twitter, people saying, take the names of people who take this opinion on COVID so we don't forget them. Um, yeah. And so now to see her come out, and, yeah. yeah so, so now to see her come out and say, we, we should, we should uh, move it past. It, it's, it's quite stunning. And part of me is very sympathetic to what she's saying. We don't want to let COVID and what happened dominate our lives. But there's this other part of me that goes, you know, when something else happens, are you going to have this position, this more nuanced position? Like, let's talk yeah. about it when the next event happens. And that, that makes it very tough to trust someone in this position because there's not a willingness to say, you know what? I was just wrong. Some of you guys were right. Um, I need to take an L here. It's more of a, well, you know, okay, we didn't get it all right, but let's, let's move forward. There's a lot of harsh things said during COVID. Oh, Yeah. No, this, uh, I guess it was an Atlantic. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, there's an Atlantic headline. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, this is fascinating in many different ways. Uh, it's, uh, I, I look at it as sort of part and parcel of the propaganda war. Uh, it's uh, what has been referred to as a, quote, limited hangout which means, well, you know, we knew that we were wrong, but we're going to just, you know, give a little bit of, you know, we're going to admit to a certain degree so that uh, we can continue on. I mean, it's a stopgap measure. If you take that view, which I do, um, about these sorts of things when uh, when there's backpedaling, uh, th that's a term. I wrote a piece for the Federalist about it called, uh, it was about the limited hangout. Um uh, Anyway, absolutely, this is, uh, you know, are they asking for forgiveness or, I mean, or are they asking that we just, uh, you know, continue to bow down? Absolutely everything that was done during the, especially during that first year, but those two years uh, had a conditioning effect. And I kind of see this as sort of a test of that conditioning effect. Will we say, oh, oh yeah, it's okay. Um, you know, all of us probably know someone who has been injured, at least injured by that vaccine. I happen to know someone who's paralyzed from the waist down because of a blood clot and uh, she'll never walk again. Uh, and that was after the first Pfizer shot. They didn't want to say it had anything to do with it, but then later they confessed, yeah, that had something to do with it, for sure. That, that was the only thing that was different. So you take a massive injury like that, and we're supposed to say, oh, it's okay. Let's forget about it. Or people who are not allowed to take uh, treatments that were very effective. Uh, this, this um, We need a, a real, if that's really what they want, then they should also be calling for a thorough investigation of what happened 
uh, throughout those two years. Um, you know, if they were really sincere, that's what they'd be calling for. But they're not, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not. And part of my frustration here is is that if you bring up something like ivermectin, uh, we were talking about this other night at the house, and my kids were saying, I don't know where I came up, but. My oldest is 14 and my next oldest is 12. And then I've got two younger ones, but there was a discussion about it. And I said, you know, the, the sad thing about ivermectin is right now where we're at in the world, it's really hard to get a read on, did it work or did it not work? I don't really have a dog in the hunt, but here's what I do know. The people during COVID would mock you relentlessly. If you thought it worked, they called Joe Rogan for, they, they made Joe Rogan. Who's got more money than just any of them TV anchors accusing him, him taking horse paste or whatever it was, or horse dewormer. And it's like, you know, I remember his, his phrase was to the CNN guy. I've got, I've got money. Bleepity bleep. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, he does have money. I'm not saying ivermectin worked or didn't work, but the, but both sides take things and they just triple down on it to such a level that there is no ability to go back into, um, look at what happened and go, you know what? Yeah. Maybe we overstay this here we're wrong here. We're right here. We jumped the gun here. There is a sense of move on, but this is a larger media problem that I have. Um, if you go back before COVID, I'm in Texas. So the fentanyl drug overdose crisis isn't really a big story where I live or in Louisiana at the time, but it was a story nationally. We can't trust big pharma. Mm -hmm. And then you go to COVID and all of a sudden it's like, Hey, the pharmacy industry is good. Take the vaccine who yeah. don't question the scientists. And this gets into this larger thing of there's these narratives that move. And I'm not saying that the argument's the same. I'm saying that people aren't unpacking why this argument is different. Why now all of a sudden we should trust pharmaceutical companies because I was told not too long ago, they were trying to kill us. And so we kind of move from narrative to narrative and to be outside of that narrative and to question the last narrative in light of the new narrative makes you a political outlier. And, and, and it's quite frustrating. Yeah. No, the narratives are all over the map. And, uh, and it, it's just to try to match up with the, you know, the, the agenda to get everybody in line with the narrative. And, uh, you know, with, you know, and the narrative is generally uh, whatever pulls people into, I think, a state of social control. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's it's been pretty crazy insane you mentioned joe rogan and uh there were old uh, old timey uh you know uh, rock stars who tried to get him thrown off of spot get him thrown off of spotify specifically mm -hmm. for interviewing dr robert malone and what they hated about that particular mm -hmm. that particular interview was that dr malone was uh, talking about uh, the theory of Dr. Matthias Desmet, who just came out with a book last year called The Psychology of Totalitarianism, where he talks about mass formation psychosis. And this ties, I think it ties in very well with my book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, uh, because mass formation psychosis, should we get uh, people falling into that, uh, that, you know, narrative, that conformity impulse where they just go along 
with, uh, you know, whatever the narrative and the only narrative that they're allowed to hear. So we're isolated. Censorship is very isolating. That's what people have to understand. And, and, um, and, and through that isolation, we become more unmoored and, and you get what Dr. Desmond calls free floating anxiety and a sense of detachment, um, mm. And, and that is very easily exploited and weaponized to uh, create, um, you know, following for tyranny. So that is, um, you know, that, that's all of a piece. Mm. Okay. And so in the book, uh, the genesis of the book, obviously you got a, you got a picture of uh, our friend, Dr. Fauci <laughs> right oh, yeah. there. Um, but let me ask you this. <laughs> yes, on the cover. Yeah, yeah. So, but let me ask you this because I don't think you know. I don't think this is. I have the cover here that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There it is. Yeah. Yep, I don't know. That's it. it yeah. But it's not. I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I would say though, it's not just a left wing thing though. I think that that Trump's administration, um, would in the and and many Trump supporters would be very guilty of this same thing at various times. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a left or a right thing. I think it's it's a a function that 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 both parties seem to fall prey to. Well, I think early in the pandemic, I think there were a lot of good faith. Uh, you know, people, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. You know, this was all a very novel idea uh, that there could be a a pandemic worldwide that. Um, made us vulnerable to this, you know, dead, death, you know, a very deadly virus. Uh, It it turned out that the virus was nearly 100% recoverable for anybody who didn't already have major comorbidities, you know, other serious health problems or were in a younger age bracket, younger than, say, 80. And uh, so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I think in the early days, I know you mentioned like, you know, um, Trump or Trump supporters, you know, early on, there were very good faith uh, efforts by most people to, you know, follow the, uh, you know, the not the mandates, because it was supposed to just be 15 days, right, to flatten the curve. But people tried to, you know, make sure that they weren't uh, endangering anyone. They, they didn't really know. We didn't know a lot. But then when they started, uh, refusing, like Dr. Fauci and others uh, in Big Pharma, uh, demeaning the idea of using what turned out to be very effective treatments, uh, you know, and refusing to allow uh, this treatment, ivermectin or, you know, uh, other, you know, hydro, uh, I forgot what the other one, hydroxychloroquine, they weren't even allowing mm-hmm. people to get these cheap remedies that would have probably would have saved a lot of lives. And so, um, you know, when, when these things started happening and then it, you know, 15 days turned into, you know, at least 15 months, uh, it, it was, um, you know, people, most people who think, you know, were, were given pause by that. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would push back, and I, 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 th- I think that the narrative that we didn't know by the time we shut down is is actually not true either. If you go look at the the report, who was the guy who 
from London who issued the report, who was cheating on his wife or sleeping with some dude's wife or whatever it was. Um, if you go look at their report, which is kind of the one that predicted the 2 million deaths, even that report showed you that it was going to be um, primarily um, elderly people who'd be at high risk from COVID. And so I, I think, I think the problem is, is that um, by the time it comes, by the time the U S shut down, if you looked at China, looked at Iran, look at Italy, um, there was actually enough data for us to, 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 to deduce where this thing was heading. Um, now that information wasn't being disseminated quite, you know, widely, and that's a different discussion altogether. But um, I think that's part of this, this reframing of the argument, which is we didn't know when we shut down. I, actually, I think there's plenty of evidence to support that we could have known. Uh, and then furthermore, by May, late April, May, there was a study came out like, I don't remember. You can look at like 70 or 80% of all deaths in Europe were from nursing homes. You know, like, so the, the data was there. The people that I know that took a stance were, were just not willing to look at the data or would minimize the data uh, because they're, I mean, I, I guess they were in a panic. They were scared to death. I don't know. Um, but it's, just, it's, 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 it's not, I'm not sure I'm willing to go as far as we did. Everyone know. Sure. But could we have known? I think there's actually more data back then uh, that people just didn't want to get. But my point with Trump more is um, I don't think Trump is immune during his, his time in office. We're trying to silence or diminish or using his supporters to ostracize people who disagree with him. Um, and so that, that would be the point about, I'm not sure that, that, that the right is necessarily immune from this tactic as well. It's just that the left maybe be, maybe more effective at it. Well, I guess I don't quite understand what you're getting at there. Uh, Trump supporters ostracizing those who don't agree with them, or perhaps you just mean that some of them would not, you know, cow, you know, be cowed by the propaganda. Uh, when you've got a media monopoly uh, that keeps hammering away and hammering away, and it's like 95%, um, you know, it seems to me that I guess you know, those who have a problem with that are going to, you know, say something. Uh, I'm not so sure that it cowed anybody on the other side, though. I don't know. I mean, did you did you feel that that happened? The, the, that. Um, what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you go back and look at, you know, Trump's run to presidency, he was very good at exposing the left for the frauds that they are right They're They're very much high and mighty and they're, they're very much high class. And all of a sudden Trump comes along and, and treats them differently. And they, they can't, the facade is dropped. They're no longer these people of high integrity. And it's quite obvious to anyone who wants to see, um, he is more of a mirror for them than what they are. Um, was he effective in silencing people on the left? Probably not. And so I agree, I agree with you there. Did he try to use his stroke? I mean, just think about people that he would bring in, um, I'm not a John Bolton fan, but he brought in John Bolton um, or, or people like that. And oh, yeah. they're the greatest thing. And as soon as he's done with them, they were terrible. And so all of a sudden they go from really great to the worst. And that's how he talks because he's kind of hyperbolic like that. But it also is part of the tactic that you could see someone using to isolate someone, which is this guy's really great. Oh my gosh, he's the worst. And so from that perspective, I'm saying, I don't, I don't think that what Trump was doing is necessarily um, maybe not as malicious as some of this other stuff or maybe it is but it's not as far removed so john bolton amongst trump supporters will probably never get another day in the sun um, whatever you think of him because of how trump handled that so that would be an example hmm. well i don't know the details of you know his 
particular situation, uh, Bolton. But I guess I would say that everybody is susceptible to the conformity impulse. And and a lot of people are susceptible to the totalitarian impulse and how that plays out, uh, depending on, you know, the environment, the situation, who has the megaphones. Uh, you know, it, I guess uh, I would say that the best solution for that is a free and open society that allows for different points of view to be aired and recognizes the right of everyone to uh, express their point of view. When you lose that, you end up with that situation in North Korea we were talking about. You end up, you can end up uh, with people, a whole society in the state of mass delusion. One of the things I mentioned in my book, uh, I'll just so you know, show it again. This is the, you know, the cover with, there's Dr. Fauci. Um, one of the things I mentioned is that y- you have this, you know, th- this whole um, dynamic playing out where uh, when when there is self-censorship, which happened, especially during, well, in Mao's China, but also if you look at Stalin's reign of terror in Soviet Russia, uh, there is a, a really good book about it called The Whisperers and how it affected private life. Uh, it was written by Orlando Figus. And how it affected private life is that people started uh, having what he called a duality. They would, you know, have their private thoughts and uh, and then what they would say publicly. And and this is this is the danger. This is really dangerous when when this is allowed to you know, turn into what we call a spiral of silence of, you know, any views, really. I mean, you know, you get at the truth by allowing people to see what's real, what's not, verify with someone else. Oh, did you see that? I'm, you know, I'm not sure what that means. And you have real open conversations in a society. And our framer, the framers of the Constitution, I believe, understood that. That was the way to protect that hidden sphere, that private sphere of life in which um, you you can have real conversations that ripple outward, uh, you know, throughout a civil society. And when you lose that, you lose, uh, you know, everything that bonds a society together. So that that would be my point in, in responding to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see the totalitarian impulse coming out in different ways, you know, uh, with some people more than others, um, wherever they are on the what the political spectrum. But um, the, the cure is free speech, as far as I'm concerned. We agree 100% there. Free speech is, is the cure. Um, and part of the, the, the disease is the access to power. Right. And so these discussions are so high stakes because it's actually about power, whether it's Mao, North Korea, Stalin, it's all about power. And the more power is that's at stake, the less people want to have free speech because you might lo- We all know that we can convince each other, um, through speech and all kinds of other things. And so, um, the, thinking through it and going, okay, well, we want more free speech. Yes. But why is it so? divisive right now. Well, we understand the stakes of the country are very high, whether you'd like Trump or Biden or Clinton or whoever, Obama, doesn't matter. You understand that if you lose the debate, you lose the power. And in the U.S., power is at an all-time high. 
And so, um, and, and of course, those countries you mentioned, power is as everything. And so that's that's kind of the battleground, right? If me and you were talking here on a podcast, we disagree. Eh, whatever. It's a podcast. We're having a good time. No harm, no foul. But if this were for, if, if this was a political debate where we're trying to sway voters, the stakes are enormous. And so we have to go after each other. We have to cut off. We have to move the Overton window, it seems. Um, so I'll give you the last word and also tell us beyond the book, we'll link to on Amazon, where else you'd like to like us to send people to. Thank you. Well, I think the only way around this is, uh, you know, I have like a, a three a three things that I would say. First of all, um, we do have to understand that free speech is something we either use it or lose it. Uh, it it has that. I mean, the less you have of it, the the you know it, it starts to dissolve, and so free people really need to understand that. And the separation of powers, as you were saying. Is, is really an important part of that. Uh, you can't have just one media monopoly. And, um, and, and you're right. I think that that is why uh, free speech is suppressed, is to um, create that isolation that allows for the power mongering to root itself. So the other thing that we need to do besides recognize that is recognize that without free speech, we really can't have relationships. I mean, think about it. If, if you're cut off through self-censorship or any other kind of major severe censorship, you're isolated from other people. And, and that's part of the reason that's why there was a war on private life in Stalin's Russia, a war on private life in Mao's China. And, and there's always a war on private life in any kind of you know, dictatorship like that. And then the third thing is we really have to guard, understand that we have to guard and protect all of those relationships against this sort of, uh, you know, power, power mongering. So um, anyway, those that's kind of, as I see it, sort of the way out, because once you develop these strong relationships, you can develop what are called parallel Policies, you know, all of our institutions are pretty corrupt right now, <laughs> corrupt, subverted. And so you, you have to develop these other, you know, connections that eventually as the corrupt institutions, hopefully, and they will collapse under their own weight of corruption. But uh, the question is always the kind of damage that's done in the interim. But uh, you've got to have other forms of community to you know, take their place. So that's, you know, that's uh, this really the only okay. solution. Great. Okay. We're going to link to the book on Amazon. Where else do you want us to send people to? Website, social media? Uh, well, I have a, a blog. It's not real, uh, you know, right now it's not uh, particular. you know, it, it's active. It's more active. It's uh, but it's Stella Morabito, all one word, StellaMorabito.net. Uh, I also write, I'm a senior contributor to The Federalist. And so if you go to The Federalist slash author, federalist.com slash author slash Stella Morabito, one word, you can find my writing there as well. But the book is available on Amazon. And um, I hope you'll leave a nice customer review if you uh, there, if you'll if you uh, get a chance to, to read it. And I think also Barnes and Noble uh, website has it as well. Thank you so much. Okay, Stella. Thank you and best of luck on the book.
Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.